Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Hebrews and chapter 11, and we are for the next few uh, evening services, at least Lord willing, going to take some time to examine what our responsibility is as individual believers, as individual family units, but also corporately as a family unit, as a church, what our responsibility, not just to the faith that was handed to us, not just for the faith that was passed on to us from those that went before us, but what is our responsibility for those or to those that come behind us? That's why we called it the generation effect. I don't know about you, but I want to see my children, my grandchildren, even my great-grandchildren living for the Lord, following the Lord, going after the Lord in all that the Lord would have them to do. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. And there really is the key, isn't it? That's really the secret. And that we should be seeking after the Lord in our individual age, in our individual generation, in our individual culture, seeking after the Lord and then believing that because we are seeking after the Lord, that the Lord will allow all these things to come after us. We, we put in your, uh, in your handout a generational breakdown, all right? A generational breakdown. So just out of curiosity there, how many baby boomers do we have in the room? Baby boomers. Let me see. If let, Well, uh, be careful. I know that raising your hand, I don't want you to do it too quickly, okay? So just go slow. I don't want you to throw a shoulder out while you're raising your hand. All right, so it's the baby boomers. Just raise it real slowly. Okay, there we go. Let's see. Wonderful. All right. How many, how many Generation X? Let me see where Generation X is at. Okay, X, you're young enough. You can stand up, all right? Generation X, let's stand up. Let's see Generation X. If you're in Generation X, stand up. There they go. The reason I didn't ask the baby boomers to do that is they're rebellious. They wouldn't have done it, right? I'm like, here's this young whippersnapper telling us to stand up. I'm not going to do what he says, you know? All right, so there's, okay, great job, Generation X. In the silent generation, wonderful job, all right? And then, man, Generation Y, the millennials. Where, where are the millennials at? Let's see. If you are a millennial, and you're proud of it, all right, just go ahead and stand up. Let me see. Where are the millennials at? Millennials stand up. Man, look at that. Good job, right? Millennials showing out. Good job. Wonderful. Okay, good. And then go ahead and sit down. And then Generation Z, all right? Generation Z. Where are you at, Generation Z? Stand up. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Oh, there they go. Man, I'm not for sure what our exact numbers was, were, but I'm pretty sure that was very uh, even, just generationally. I'm not for sure there was one generation that outnumbered the other. All right, good job. Way to go. You can sit down. Great job. Orwell said, each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. Each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. 
I think we have a slide here to show you what the, uh, the general interest of each generation is. So these are uh, Generation Z and Generation Y, uh, the millennials. Here's our, here's our Generation Z is what they like, YouTube, Instagram, video games, Snapchats. They're dislike uniformity, being disconnected, uh, hobbies, keeping up with celebrities, entrepreneurship. They like to hang out at home with Netflix. Okay, there you go. Uh, that's, that's Generation Z, Generation Y, Millennials. Their likes, social media platforms, Amazon, blogs, Twitter. Dislikes, bar soap. Golf, I'm not for sure where they got these things. Golf, cruises, dinner dates, their hobbies, exercising, hiking, eating well, watching Netflix again. Right? They like to hang out, coffee shops, food trucks. I'm going to amen the food trucks one, okay? Uh, then uh, they like to hang out in my parents' basement. That's where they really like to stay. And then the resources, $2.8 trillion in annual income. Generation X, down here you have uh, their likes, connecting with friends, family, travel, work life. Their dislikes, authority, rigid work requirements, millennials, <laughs> that's funny. Hobbies there, outdoor activities involving others, family-oriented activities, hanging out with uh, watching TV, reading, sit-down restaurants, resources. They account for 31% of the total US, U.S. income. And then the baby boomers up here at the top, their likes, working from home, anti-aging supplements. Can I get an amen there, boomers? All right. Climate control, their dislikes, wrinkles, of course, okay? Millennial sleeping habits, all these kids, they sleep too much, right? Yeah, okay. Social security, uh, insecurity, their hobbies, low impact sports, Uber parenting, right? Whining and dining, hangouts, farmers markets, tailgate parties, backyards, there's total resources, $2.1 trillion, right? So each generation imagines itself more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. You say, Pastor, what, is, what does all this matter? What does all this have to do with where we're headed in the, uh, in the conversation about generational effect and about, about what we as a church, how we ought to be approaching these, how we ought to be doing this? Well, two ideas. Number one, first, we are living through a hyper-socializing experiment in the span of less than two decades we have absolutely redefined the way humans communicate, entertain, inform, relate, research, create, connect through this little thing called microblogging, right? You may understand microblogging as social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Those are just, those are the big three, but we can go to Snapchat. We can keep running, right? We can go on and on. And what we know of this microblogging world is this is simply the beginning. This is only the beginning of, of what's taken place in the last just two decades of the way we find research, research, research the way we stay connected, the way we find information, the, where, information is even, where information even comes from. Fact-checking, sourcing, all these things are now very important as we process through loads and loads and loads of information, of which you'll find out more in just a minute. We are living through one giant social experiment called social media, and no one really knows how it actually works out in the end. In 2018, New York Times ran an article, and the article was entitled, The High School That We Cannot Log Off Of. And in the article, the author argues that Twitter, and you could imply all of social media, 
has, and I quote her, an unfortunate tendency to transform adults into anxious adolescents. If through social media, I'm still quoting her, she, we become, in other words, teenagers who are notoriously poor models for self-regulation. We post a picture, a tweet, a thought, and we find ourselves clamoring for likes, for thumbs ups, for thumbs up, for feedback, for short-term rewards. And then we conflate these short-term rewards with value and truth from an imaginary audience. Wow. Is that a testament to where we live today? All of this technology comes at a cost. And that cost isn't seen any clearer than in our own personal relationships between parents, children, between husbands and wives, inside the church and outside of the church. Okay, so we, we, got, we got to chat about everything we just heard a minute ago because some of you are thinking, oh, well, well pastor must hate social media. Right? I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate social media. But what I do hate is I hate what social media is doing to us without us even realizing what it's doing to us. In, in light of all the numbers that we just heard, in light of all the time, all the time spent, all the energy, all the effort, all the requests for friendships, likes, thumbs up, all of the, of the points of validation that we try to find, all of these things where we're looking for self-worth or value, what space is left for the development of our devotional life? Do we have any time in our lives at all where there's extended quiet times? Meditating on God's word. Communing with God in prayer. Is there any room left for reading anything longer than 144 characters? Someone says social media will serve as a reminder on the last day that our prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. We have plenty of time. We use the noise of social media and technologies. We're, we're striking social media, but we could talk about a hundred other things too, and you know that, I know that. But we use the noise of social media and technology to drown out all the things in our life that we would rather not face. And we move activity to activity to avoid having to be alone with ourselves, even for a moment, to avoid having to see ourselves in the mirror. And social media is not the problem. Social media is a mask of the problem. We clamor and long for breaking news alerts, for viral tweets, for text messages, because it, it means, at least for the moment, that we can evade eye contact with the Savior. It means we can, we can evade the seriousness of what it means to stand in front of a holy, living, righteous God. We can ignore having to hear him, hear his word. And we do not have to be faced with what a living God is calling to you and to me to do that might, even for a moment, disrupt our lives. You would think that all of this connectivity that we have, you would think that it makes us better. You think all these relationships we're building, that, that we're, we're the better for it, but in fact, studies show just the opposite. 10,000 followers, but all alone, was the article that CBS, or was the, was the report that CBS ran in 2018. In the report, they cited a company called Cigna. 
Cigna found that 46% of US adults report finding themselves with feelings of loneliness and isolation, and 47% say that they feel left out. As Cigna says in their, in their study, they said half of Americans, half of Americans say that they do not have any meaningful, in-person, face-to-face interaction on a daily basis. What that tells us, it tells us that we're all running to our screens and devices. We're hanging out on imaginary forums, looking for these, these feedbacks, these little rewards along the way, clamoring for someone out there to like what we did or didn't do. And when we don't receive that, what do we do? We block them. That's what we do. And what's it done to us? It's caused us to be more isolated than we were before. Individualism is so prevalent in our day, and yet individualism is fundamentally incompatible with the life of relationships that God in his word calls us to over and over and over again. Any significant event in the scripture is found inside of a community of believers. The central, think of the central events of the Old Testament. Think of the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. Think of the crossing of the Red Sea. Think of the giving of the law at Sinai. All of these were what? They were community creating events. You get to the New Testament, you have the same thing. You have Pentecost happening where the, 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 they, they gather there in Jerusalem and 3,000 profess the Lord Jesus as Savior and then are baptized on that same day. Think of even the New Testament itself. It's letters written to the churches. It's letters written to a group of people assembling together in a local place, selling all that they have, giving all that they have, and having all things in common for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire New Testament speaks nothing at all about a churchless Christianity. And we live in this world where I don't, I don't do church. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I don't do church. You won't find that in the Bible at all. I, 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 do, I do Facebook church. I got my own little group of followers on Facebook, and that's all that I need because they believe Jesus. And that, No, no, no. There's a, there's a powerful momentum that happens when men and women get together in the same room, study the same word, sing the same songs, praise the same Savior vocally, verbally, and visibly. All of that leads us to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verse number 40. This is it for tonight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. But God, having provided some better thing for us, circle the word us. But God, having provided some better thing for us, that they, circle the word they. God has provided something better for us that, that they, without us, circle the word us. Okay, so God, God's doing something for us. How did God do something for us? What did God do for us? When was God doing something for us? God did something for us when, when they, who, who's the they? The, the they is all of the Old Testament saints you read about in this entire chapter. 
You know how far back that goes? It goes all the way back to Abel. It actually goes back to the creation of the world. In verse number one, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse three, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So what was God doing in them, or the they of, of verse 40? What was God doing in them? God was doing something in them. God was doing something with them for who? For us. You see it? Look at verse number 40. Look at the verse. So God provided something for us. What did he provide for us? How, how did he provide something for us? In what he was doing in them, or the they, in what he was doing in them, or they, he provided it for us that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Verse 12, wherefore seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run our race, and, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look here. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Our faith is not the, the proprietor, the originator of our faith was not Moses. It was not Abraham. It was not Paul. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, originer, the, the originator of our faith. Man, the, the author of our faith is Jesus, and the finishing of our faith will be Jesus. It's, it's been God's plan. This is God working for you and for me. This is the faith that he's delivered to you and to me, but how did he deliver it to us? He delivered it to us through them, through they. God did something for us through them. They acted. They were obedient. They went out. They gave. They sacrificed. They labored. They laid it down themselves. They esteemed the riches of Egypt not comparable to the... They esteemed the riches of Egypt not comparable to the glory that was to come. They did this, and God called them to that for who? For us. For us. That we are, are, we are a part of something really big, really old, and really special. The more I thought about this, the more I was persuaded that Christ is calling you and me to explode stereotypes about generations, to fight back against what the culture tells our generations to be doing and how we should be living, that we would resist the natural flow of our culture and that we would think deep and serious and long about what it means to be a part of something that only God could do. You say, where are we headed in this study, Pastor? These next three nights, what are we going to talk about? That is what we're going to talk about. How do we, how do we resist this natural flow of our world to say, man, this is boomers, and these, these are millennials, and this is Gen Z, and, this, and, and everybody stays in their way. And how do we resist the pull that drags us into this just daily grind and wake up and set aside and put off all these weights so that we can go strong after God? Looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse number six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. The him there is God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
It's easy for us to find ourselves looking to the, quote, heroes of the faith. And it's, it's even more, we find ourselves, we should find ourselves considering that what is the nature of faith? You know, right now, somewhere in the world, there is a Muslim bowing down during an Islamic call to prayer. Right now, somewhere in the world, a Hindu is burning incense, hoping to please their God. Right now in the world, a businessman is working tirelessly on a new deal, throwing all of his hopes and all of his dreams on some fleeting vapor of success, just dying or longing to hear somebody congratulate him or tell him, well done. Right now, somewhere in the world is a college student burning the midnight oil trying to finish at the top of her class so she can land the job and she can find some security. But, but religion does not please God, and piety does not please God, and hard work, that does not please God. Faith pleases God. And without it, it is impossible to please God. We give ourselves to all these things that the world says, this is what success looks like. This is what your family has to have. These are the toys and trinkets that you better get. And social media goes a long way to feeding and creating in us this sort of discontentment with where we are. So you're laying in bed at night and your husband rolls over and searches the ESPN app. You scroll through social media and you begin to ask questions like this. Well, they look like they were having fun tonight. Why couldn't we have fun? Well, she must be a super mom because look at everything she's doing for her kids. Oh, look, look at all the vacations they went on. And look at all the stuff they have. And no, no one posts the picture of the bad hair day on Facebook, right? No one puts the picture of the kids while they're going, smile for the camera and like it, right? No one posts that. It's only when the family was perfectly smiling. No, no, no one posts the picture of the bad day. No, it's all of these highlight reels throughout the day, and we find ourselves scrolling through, creating a sense of discontentment with what God has given to us, with who, look here, with who God has given to us. And instead of doing heart work and seeing to it that my wife and my children are flourishing, I find myself frustrated because they got all that, and I don't have anything. You got an outline and you got 20 points. So here's the long, hard work. How many of you are nervous about 20 points? No one's nervous about it? Okay, great. I'm just going to walk right through Hebrews 11 and I'm going to go as fast as I can so you keep up. I'm going to go right through Hebrews 11. We're going to start in verse 3. And, and here's, here's what we're asking. What, it, what is the nature of faith in this chapter that God called them to? The they of verse 40. What's the nature of their faith that God called them to for us? And what should that then produce in us? Okay, so verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. 
so that the, so that the things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. So the first point, faith understands that God is creator of the world. If faith is relatively simple, it believes that God exists, and it believes that because God does exist, it is worth it to obey him. Look here. Faith believes that God exists, and because God does exist, faith says it is worth it to obey God. That the source of our faith is not explanation. It's not information. The source of our faith is revelation. The Bible never sets out to prove that God exists. There's no book of the Bible that says five arguments for God. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. It, it, it states it as factual. It doesn't approach it in a way to say, well, let's consider if philosophically God can or cannot possibly, maybe, hypothetically exist. There's, there's never, the Bible never presents God that way. Faith understands that God exists. Faith simply points to God and says that that is the creator of the world. He is the one who is speaking, and we must recognize him as God. Faith understands that God is the creator. Number two, verse number four. By faith, Abel offered unto God. Look, look here, look here, look here. So as we walk through every one of these characters, I want you to go right back to Sunday school. Okay? And, and everybody who's not a millennial or you're younger, think flannel graph, okay? How many of you remember the flannel graph, okay? Think, think flannel graph. All those stories, all those stories you remember growing up. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to walk us through. Verse number four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. So faith, number two, faith offers to God. Faith offers to God. Faith is an offering of ourselves to God. It's a personal encounter with God. Look at verse number five. Look at verse number five, verse number six. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. So faith offers to God, but faith pleads, pleases God. Look at verse number seven. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So, so the, the, the next number you have there, faith heeds warnings. Faith heeds warnings. Look at verse number 8, verse number 9, verse number 10. By faith, Abraham, and when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And when he went out, not knowing whether he went, but by faith he sojourned into the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs, of, the heirs with him of the same promise. And he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So look here. Faith. Faith obeys without knowing everything. There's no, look here. There's no faith apart from obedience. If you notice, notice how the writer describes them? They're all presented with some form of action, right? And Noah built, Abraham went out, Cain or Abel offered. There's always some sort of call to action. Look at verse number 11, verse number 12. 
Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And so therefore sprang there even one and him as good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So here you go. Faith, trust the promises of God. Faith trusts God's promises. Faith's object is rooted and revealed in the word of God. Faith is not a hunch. Faith is not a positive feeling. Faith is not a wish upon a star. Faith is not a magic elixir. Faith is none of these things. Faith is rooted and revealed, grounded, built in the word of God. Look at verse 13, 14, 15, 16. These all died in faith. Not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, and they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Look here. This is what we are. This world is not our home. This is not the end for us as believers. There's strangers and pilgrims here. Look at verse 14. And they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country. That is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Faith longs for heaven. Faith longs for heaven. Look at verse number 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried. Okay, look, look here. We just walked through the first portion of the entire book of Genesis. The creation of the world, God calling himself a people out to himself, God redeeming, doing a work, God flexing his muscles on behalf of creation that's already rebelled against him. Okay, look at verse number 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. That he, and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. Of him it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting, verse 20, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So here we go. Faith willingly sacrifices all. Faith willingly sacrifices all. Verse 20, 21, 22, really fun verses. Look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. So faith blesses the future. Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So faith worships to the end. Look at verse number 22. By faith, Joseph. Look, look here. You just had a family, you just had a family heritage. Abraham, man, Isaac. Jacob, Esau, Joseph, right? All, I mean, right down the list, you just walked. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Look at verse, so, so uh, verse 22 there, faith plans, look here, faith plans beyond our lifetime. Faith plans beyond our lifetime. And we're not living and saving and getting and hoarding for this life here. Man, we aren't doing all of these things so we can leave something behind that only ends up in the yard cell at the end. We're leaving our children some prized heirloom from our family so they can sell it for a quarter at the next yard cell. 
This is, this, is the, this is what the world says to live for. Live for these things. Pursue these things. These are the things you got to get. You got to have. You got to own right now. If, this is what we live. We're living for something far beyond this. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Faith sees potential and fears no king but God. Faith sees potential and fears no king but God. We don't have time tonight, but we could open each one of these up. It would be a wonderful thing. I, I encourage you to do it this evening. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Faith chooses suffering over sin and treasures Christ over the world. Faith chooses suffering over sin and treasures Christ over the world. Moses understood that there was a reward coming to him that was greater than the entire inheritance in Egypt. And I wonder, would you and I be willing to forfeit the privileges and the power in order to identify with what the world considers ugly, disreputable, cringeworthy, especially because that is where our brothers and sisters in Christ are. And that's what Moses did. Look at verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Here it is. Faith perseveres in hope of salvation. Look at verse number 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by the dry land, which the Egyptians saying were uh, to do were drowned. Faith believes in God's miracles. Look at verse number 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Look at here. We just walk through the entire Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? All the law. We just walk through every one of those accounts. And now we're entering into the story of Joshua. We're entering into the story of Joshua. Verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they were compassed about seven days. Faith, here's the point. Faith does the seemingly ridiculous sometimes. Faith does the seemingly ridiculous. The plan that they had made no sense, humanly speaking. Right? Surely, surely there's a battle plan. Here's the plan. What's the plan, Moses? Surely you got a plan. Here's the plan. We're going to walk, and we're going to march around the walls, and we're going to do this for seven days, and then they're just going to collapse. Okay, are we going to, are we going to walk around the walls, and then somebody's going to sneak in the back door, we're going to direct all their attention this way? No. You're just going to march. If faith does the seemingly ridiculous at times. They were willing by faith to believe, look here, that God could and would do the impossible for them. Look at verse 31. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed when she had received the spies with peace. So verse 31, faith welcomes and sides with God's people. Take in for just a moment what we just read. 
Because it's absolutely astonishing the far reach of God's grace. If by faith Rahab harlot perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 down to 35. And what shall I, I more say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and of Samuel and of the prophets. Now you're through the kings. Now you're into the minor prophets. Right? Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were out of weakness made strong. They waxed valiant in fight, and they turned to flight the armies of the aliens whose women received their dead raised to life again. Write it down. Faith accomplishes more than we can ever imagine in this life. Faith accomplishes more than we can ever imagine. We do not know all their names. We do not, we're not familiar with all of their stories. And yet here are these men and women who by faith are gladly fading into obscurity so that all of the attention can be where it rightly belongs, and that is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Obscurity in the world, but look here. Obscurity in the world is what they lived with, but not obscurity from the Lord. And while you and I may not know their names, their deeds, or their actions, God certainly does. His eyes miss nothing. Faith accomplishes far more than we could ever believe. But also pick it up here, verse number 35. They quenched the violence of fire, verse 35, whose women received their dead to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had, cry of, uh, had cruel mockings and, and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute afflicted and tormented of whom this world was not worthy and they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth faith sustains the suffering faith sustains the suffering faith gives you the ability to be joyful in no matter what circumstances life brings your way Right, because we read this list and we're like, yes, we put to flight other armies. Yes, we stopped the mouths of lions. That's amazing. I mean, think Daniel and the lions did, right? I mean, that's the kind of stuff I want to be a part of. Right, but what about the lions whose mouths weren't stopped? And what, what about those who, who weren't delivered? What about those who were sawn asunder or or, or hung on Nero's statutes and dipped in oil and set on fire to light his garden? What about the entire book of, of John Fox's and his Fox's book of martyrs? What about all those brothers and sisters? You see, faith is willing to sustain the suffering. It has the ability to be joyful in no matter what the circumstances that are coming their way are. And just for the record, more faithful men are eaten by lions than not. 
build into your life a resolute, a commitment, a faithfulness to Christ, not a faithfulness to comforts, not a faithfulness to culture, not a faithfulness. Build into your life a faithfulness to Christ. And as you build into your life a faith in him, it will sustain you, give you the ability to be joyful in no matter what circumstances come your way. Look at verse number 39, verse number 40. Now we're to the end, verse 39. And all these, and, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, they received not the promise. But God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should be should not be made perfect. Faith holds together all the people of God. Do you remember when Jesus tells his disciples, I, I have sheep that you don't even know of? And the disciples are like, what? We thought it was just us. Yeah, but my sheep hear my voice and they come after me. We are a household of God's children. When God saves us, he saves us into his family. Becoming a Christian means that you are a part of a spiritual family. And as a member of a spiritual family, the family gets together in a place called church. This is why it's important for you to be in church. That Christ gave himself and loved the church. And we must understand that God is working a plan in our world that is much bigger than you, and it's much bigger than me, it's much bigger than us. Right? A basic understanding of the Christian faith is that the Christian faith is multi-generational. That God is working something bigger, grander, longer, greater than just you and me. And by the way, this story that God is working, it didn't end at the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus standing on that hill after resurrecting from the dead tells his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And do you remember what they did? Look, the Bible says in that chapter, Matthew 28, it says that they were watching Jesus as he ascends to heaven. And Jesus says, go into the world. And some worshiped and some doubted. And some of them were standing there like, I just don't know. Only time will tell with this guy. I'm not for sure if we should listen to him or not. But then some go, don't they? And we walk into the story of Acts, and Peter stands at Acts chapter number 2 and preaches at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit fills Peter and those believers there. And from that event at Pentecost, you're given the church. And then in Acts chapter number 10, in Acts chapter 11, a man by the name of Cornelius, an Italian centurion, has this vision where he's told to go get the apostle Peter, who's in Simon the Tanner's house. Peter's on top of the roof doing some study and homework. He falls asleep. Man, down comes this sheet with all all kinds of bacon and alligator and delicious meal right there. And God says, rise, kill, eat, right? That's, the, that's been the motto of every man ever since. Rise, kill, and eat. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not eating that. That's unclean. Oh, not, not so, God. I mean, you're God, but not so. And Peter goes, I'm not going out this way. You, you, you remember, the, remember the rooster crowing? Remember the water? I'm, I'm not going out on a bad note. I'm going to be true to the end. And then he hears a knock at the door. 
And it's the man from Cornelius' house. He said, Peter, you're coming with us. Peter goes down to Cornelius. Cornelius stands in front of Peter and says to Peter, hey, I don't know what it was, but I had a vision from God who told me to call for you. Hey, I want to believe on your God. Peter preaches the gospel to him. He goes, light bulb moment for Peter. Preaches the gospel. Goes, oh, okay, so that's what the sheet was all about. The gospel's made available to everybody, not just to us, that all men everywhere must believe, must hear. Peter preaches the gospel. All of Cornelius' house is saved that day. Then you get to Acts chapter number 15, and the this is one of the funniest events in the history of the church. The church gets together and says, can God save Gentiles? And Peter and Paul are in that moment, and they go, you're asking the wrong question. It's not, can God save Gentiles? God did save the Gentiles. Like, we were there. We watched it. We preached the gospel. They believed just like we believed. What do you mean, can God save the Gentiles? And the committee gets together like, okay, we vote yes. God can save the Gentiles. Like, nice of you to give God your permission. We really appreciate that, right? From Acts chapter 15, you get to 42 A.D., 42 A.D., Mark goes down to Egypt. 49 A.D., Paul heads into Turkey. 51 A.D., Paul goes up into Greece. 52 A.D., Thomas goes to India. 54 A.D., Paul takes his third missionary journey. In, in, one, in 174 A.D., there are the first Christians recorded and reported in history of, of being in the, in the area of Austria. In 252 AD, the first Christians are reported of being in a rural area of Italy. By the time you get to 350 AD, 53% of the Roman Empire were professing Christ as Lord. Look here, that's before Constantine. Right, so before Constantine, 53% of those who lived in the Roman Empire professed Jesus Christ as Lord. You could argue that as a result of that, Constantine, man, then he sees it's politically advantageous to be converted. So then he tells everybody that they must be converted. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, so to get me elected, that was probably more that avenue than the other. You don't, you, if you want to argue with me on that, you can email me later, okay? I'll give it to Derek. He'll answer it. When you get to 43, when you get to 432 A.D., Patrick heads into Ireland. He preaches the gospel. In 596 A.D., Gregory the Great sends Augustine down into England to do missionary work. And in under a year, they baptized almost 1,000 people in that area. 330 and 635 A.D., the first Christian missionaries make their way over to China. In 740 A.D., you have this group of Irish monks who moved up into Iceland and began to give the gospel there. In 900 A.D., you have the missionaries who reach into Norway. In 1200 A.D., the Bible is available, made available into 22 different languages. In 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. And then 1554, 1500 converts of Christianity being reported in what is now known as Thailand. 1743, David Brainer makes his way to the North American Indians and preaches the gospel to them there. And in 1894, a group of people living in Long Beach decide to plant a church and raise up a gospel lighthouse to say something that we have is worth giving and living for. That's what I'm trying to tell you. This is, this is bigger, greater, longer, deeper, more serious than you and me. The faith that we hold, that we preach, that we teach, that we live, this is not limited to a generation. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning. Our faith is a multi-generational faith. And what God has invited you and what God has invited me into 
by way of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is what he has intended to do since the beginning of time, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. So what does that responsibility mean then? If we are a part of something really big, really old, really great, if that is what we are a part of, then what demand is placed on our hearts and lives? What do we owe to the generation before us? And what do we owe to the generation coming behind us? And what does it mean then to live responsibly with the gifts and the resources that God has given to us? And what does it mean to also use those gifts and resources in a way that stewards them well so that the generations who come behind us can have a clear path of faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not just living for our own comfort. It's not just eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. It's not save and get. It's not buy trinkets and use them for your own good. It's live your life for something far bigger, far greater than anything that this world has to offer you. Lots of mistakes are made when we think that God's work is limited to you and to me. That God has been running the world for a really long time before we got here, and he's done pretty good without us. Can't you think that? If you take a step back, you should be, I think, four things. You should be first, you should be amazed. You should be amazed that God has invited you and me into this. Number two, you should take advantage of the opportunity, the 20, 30, 40 years you have left on this earth, whatever it is, you should use every one of those minutes for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that whatsoever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, you do all to the glory of the Lord. Some have more time left than others, but all of us have a time left. How will you use it? I think it should, third, produce inside of your heart a respect for what has been handed to you. That men and women have gone before us, have paid deep and heavy prices, to, a, a deep and heavy price to give us what we have by way of a church, by way of a building, by way of a pew to sit in, by way of the scriptures that men and women have gone before us who have paid deep, serious prices, and that you and I should show the proper respect to, to those men and women. And I think then we should take responsibility with what we have. And we should manage and steward what God has given to us faithfully for those who come behind us. I believe with all my heart that God is and has been pouring out his spirit on First Baptist. I don't believe he does that because we're cutting edge. I don't believe he does that because we're trend setting. I don't, I don't believe that he does, he, he's pouring his spirit out on us for any of those reasons. I am, I am constantly and consistently amazed at what God is doing in this place, in us, through us, and most importantly, in spite of us. But what God is doing in us, through us, and with us is not better than God himself. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. 
It's wonderful to be a part of a church family where 11 families dedicate their babies to the Lord this morning and where three follow the Lord in believer's baptism and where two accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And it's a wonderful thing to be a part of a church family that has all kinds of age groups and generations and brackets and people represent. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of that. But that is not better than Jesus. Jesus is better than that. So who are we looking to? Who's the author and the finisher of our faith? Looking to Jesus. Our faith in him, our faith on him, our eyes set on him. So how, how will we respond? How should we respond? Well, we gave you a list of questions on the back of that handout. I would encourage you to Take some time this evening to walk through that as a family, husband, wife team. Maybe as parents and children, teenagers and parents sitting down together saying, hey, let's, let's think of how we use these things. Are we using these things in a way to help point others, show others about our good and great God? Are we leveraging these things for God's glory and his good in our lives and through our world? Are we just using them in the natural way that we're just poured through them? How much time are we spending on these things versus time spent all alone, meditating on God's word, hiding God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him? We can quote out the latest hashtags and the newest and neatest trends, but can we spend time memorizing and reading God's word, speaking to one another about what God is doing in our lives? Shame on us, shame on us if all we hand our children is our Instagram accounts. And if we do not hand them a faith that will lead them and call them into deeper and deeper water where God is calling us, us to go. We'll think about this in three ways. We think about it first, tomorrow night, the prayer of an old saint. We talk about what it means to respect our elders. How many of you have seen this missing in our world today, right? What does it mean to respect our elders and why? It's an interesting thing. The Bible actually never calls us to treat everybody the same. That's an American idea. Americans say you should treat everybody the same. Don't treat anybody different. The Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible says that there's a certain respect and honor that you should so, show someone who is older than you, and there's a certain love and patience that you should show someone who is younger than you, and there's a certain manner and, and way that you should carry yourself that you should show someone who's, who's of a different gender than you are. The Bible doesn't ever say treat everybody the same. The Bible says, man, give honor to whom honor is due. Those who are older, treat them like fathers in the faith. Man, show them respect, give them honor, give them their place, position. And this is why we tell our children to answer yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to authority figures. This is why we don't, this is why our children don't run around and call the senior adults in the room by their first name. This is foundational in our faith. Man, that there's this respect and honor shown to those who have gone before us. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. We'll talk Wednesday night. That, that book, that verse from Jeremiah, Lord, or, or Tuesday night rather, that verse from Jeremiah, say not that I am a youth. 
We be very careful about just throwing discouraging comments toward a younger generation, considering them to be lazier than we are, not know as much as we do, not be as well balanced as we are. The sound of a crying baby is the sound of a growing church. And we've said this over and over again. The, che the teenagers, the children, the boys and girls, they are not the church tomorrow. They are the church today. We, we all grow old and wither and go away, and then they rise up, and we need the Lord to give them strength and faith and understanding so that we can pass on this faith to them. And so how should we treat younger people in our congregation? How should we interact with those who are younger than we are? How should we listen? How should we learn? How can we invest in them? How can we just not complain about the young adults and the teenagers? How can we actually help the young adults and the teenagers? So we'll talk about that, Lord willing, on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, we'll get together final time. And the young and the old shall dream together, Acts chapter number two. Now, the young, and they have these dreams, and the old, they have these visions. And then in Acts chapter 2, where both of them are doing that together, man, you see the Holy Spirit of God show up in a very special way. And God has given a group of people in this room an incredible amount of wisdom, knowledge, and experience from life. God has given a group of people in this room an incredible amount of strength and energy and zeal. And when we use all of that together, God gets the glory in a way that only he can get from us. So that's the goal. That's the aim. And I want you to be with us. I don't want you to miss one, I don't want you to miss one service. Let's stand together for prayer, shall we? Father, we stand amazed. We stand at awe that you would invite us into what you are doing in and through this world. Father, we have a desire, I believe corporately, and I also believe individually, to be faithful to that which has been entrusted to us, to run our leg of the race well. So Father, I pray that you'd give us understanding and courage and insight in how to do that. Every person in this room has a specific call from you on them, and I pray, Father, that they would surrender to that call. And I pray that you would use us in a way to reach as many people in this city as we possibly can. And may we see this city turned upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. And I pray that we would teach, and I pray that we would invest, and I pray that we would steward, and I pray that we would train those who come behind us to walk in the same way. Not in what the culture says should or ought to be the same. Father, but we, you and your word call us to do. Father, and to those who've Coming to the end of their race, may we show respect and concern and care and love and honor and a willingness to listen. 
Father, so that we might be, it might be well with us. Listening to generations before us is good for us so that things may go well 